Uh, turn, please, this evening, and I don't think I'm on with this microphone. Uh, turn, please, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter number three. <clears throat> and it has been almost a month since we have been in this book. I would like to begin one then once again in verse number one, and we will read down through verse number seventeen this evening. First Corinthians chapter three and verse number one. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, yet neither now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? Even as the Lord gave to every man, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. <clears throat> but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And I'm going to stop there this evening and let's pray. Well, Father, grant to us, please, grace and wisdom to receive and understand your words, to not just be able to put them together grammatically, knowing the nouns and the verbs, but to be able to grasp them spiritually, that which they suggest and imply and demand of us. And we ask for your help, for you are our teacher in this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've pretty much worked our way together over a couple of Wednesday nights in verses 1 through 15, which, as God does so often in the Bible, without making an issue out of it, which we tend to do, he just kind of lays together side by side the fact that he works and we work. That there is something that God is doing that only God can do, and there is something for men to do that men do because God is doing it, and he doesn't 
come all apart at the seams over the fact that this is what he's teaching. We, human beings, I, I hope not us individually, but human beings just tend to get very confused about this and to become very territorial about this. Is the Bible from God or man? Yes. Is Jesus God or man? Yes. Is salvation of God or man? Yes. And God just presents those things as facts. So here is Paul on the one hand. And you'll notice, folks, we're not going to go back and read through it, but if you'll notice in the first four verses of chapter 3 that Paul has one thing on his mind, and that that is, that is, although he doesn't believe they're lost people, he believes they're thinking like lost people. That's what he means when he's calling them carnal. You're carnal, you're carnal, you're carnal. Why are you carnal? Because you're divided over me and Apollos. And, and Apollos and I, or Peter, if you want to throw Peter into the mix, which Paul does in chapter 1, God sent Apollos to some people and Paul to some people and Peter to some people and those people came to faith and it was all the work of God and so therefore the laborer is really to that extent nothing but he is a laborer. And therefore in the rest of chapter 3 the laborer needs to be very careful how he builds which you could argue raises the question if the worker is God what's the difference what kind of worker I am? Which is, by the way, the way that lots of people do work. It doesn't matter if I do anything. God's going to do what God's going to do. No point if I should pray. God's going to do what God's going to do. No point for me to witness. God's going to do what God's going to do. But again, that will not bear up under the weight of Scripture because here is God talking to us through Paul going, look, the worker is nothing. But the work that he does matters, and he better do it properly. And God's going to judge the work that he does, even though at the end of the day the worker is nothing and God is everything. Which is some dimension, folks, of how well we understand the Bible and how much we believe it, that we work for the Lord in the way that he instructs, in the knowledge that at the end of the day whatever is done is his credit because it is his work that has gotten it done. And yet God in his kindness and his graciousness rewards his workers for the work they do. And Paul is very clear about that. If when our work goes into the fire, it abides, we get a reward. And if our work goes into the fire, and according to Ephesians 4, all believers are part of the church building process, If our work doesn't survive, then we're still saved, but there's nothing coming in the way of rewards. We've we've worked through that, and, and we've talked about that. And that brings us really then this evening to verses 16 and 17, which are the passage we will be looking at tonight. Why is it this way? Why on the one hand is God the worker? And why then must I be a worker? And even more, at least in my mind, why does the kind of work I do matter? And this is just, this is a terrible illustration, but it's an illustration. Guys, maybe maybe your wife asks you to to do a task. 
And all the while you're doing the task, you know that you're doing the task like a man, which means you know that she's going to come back and do the task the way she wanted the task done. So we have these kind of conversations with ourselves. Why bother? Why, why, why put forth any effort? I'm not going to get it right anyway. But the scriptural admonition is that every one of us needs to be very careful how we build and that we have a vested interest. We have our own interest. The Lord has an interest and we have an interest in the quality of work that we do for our Savior. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul begins to explain in a little more detail the rationale for that. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So just as in verses 1 through 4, right, carnality was his dominant theme. And in verses 5 through 11, the worker is his dominant theme. Now his dominant theme is the temple. And the reason that God has so much to say about and so much interest in the building of the church is because the church is his. It is, it is, and we know this, it's not ours. It is most certainly not mine. It is the Lord's. So when God talks to us as he does in chapter 3, down through verse number 15, Folks, he's, he's not talking to us as an outside counselor. He's, he's not talking to us as if we had hired an attorney to give us legal advice or an architect to give us building advice or an engineer to give us structural advice. He is talking to us as the one who owns what is being Constructed in, in chapter 3 and verse number 9, Paul had made this comment, We are laborers together with God. Ye, the plural of you, are God's husbandry. You are God's building. So, God has some laborers who are laboring and all laborers are laboring together to build a building and we really shouldn't think of it along these lines, folks. It's, it's not like each one of us is building our own little individual building that we're going to present to the Lord for his approval. We're, we're building his building. There's just one church, and we are laborers in that field, and it's the Lord's. And so he's telling us what to do and he's telling us how he wants us to do it and he's telling us why he wants it done that way and he is assuring us that it is in our best interest to do it that way and why is this? Our text tonight, verse number 16, know ye not, a question is you know by now, 
that we see frequently in the book of Corinthians to people who continue to profess to Paul how much they know. And Paul keeps asking them then, well, since you know so much, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Which brings us to the second point that Paul makes. The church is not simply God's possession. It is not simply a matter of him owning it. Like we own our homes. That's my house. It is God's dwelling place. Verse number 16. Know ye not that you're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in believing people. In the beginning of this letter, chapter 1 and verse number 2, Paul wrote to them, unto the church of God which is Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart in Christ, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And now he comes to them and says, don't you know this? Don't you know this? And, and there's, when, whenever you read that, folks, in Corinthians, understand that there's a bit, at least a hint of a rebuke in the question. That it always conveys the idea of, you, you claim to know so many things. Do you know this? Twelve times Paul asked that question Nine of the twelve, three-quarters of the times, he uses to the Corinthians. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And the gist of it, folks, when he poses the question is this. Right? He's not asking them if they are aware of the fact. He is asking them if they have given any consideration to what the facts mean. Right? Here's a fact, folks. The Spirit of God lives in believers. That's a fact. But it's more than a fact. It is, it is supposed to have some bearing on how we function. What is, it, what is that going to look like in our lives? And since, by the way, there's only one spirit, all believers have the same spirit. So that This is one of the real problems with divisiveness and division is that God is not divided. God does not pit us against each other. God has one mind, one intention, one will when it comes to his church. I want to just pause for a second and not spend a lot of time But let's just try and think a little bit about this as it would exist in Paul's world. The Romans were, of course, a very religious people. In fact, part of their offense at the exclusivity of Christianity was that it seemed to be them to be offensive and an affront to their religion. 
They didn't think of themselves as we would, that religion, that Christianity is an offense to secularism and science. It was an offense to the other religions. Right? We have all of these religions that exist, and then you guys come along and you have no toleration for any religion besides your own. Why do you have to be like that? And so Paul's world was very religious, and therefore when you went through any Roman city, you encountered many temples because every deity had their own. Just like when you drive through Omaha, Nebraska, folks, it's pretty common to pass churches. There are lots of churches. And there are lots of meeting places. And although we would be far from all of the same mind about the kind of churches that we should attend, as you drive through the city of Omaha, still to this day, the vast majority of churches are going to have some kind of identification as Christian. They're going to identify in some way with Christ. There are synagogues, yes, and there are mosques, yes, and there's a Hindu temple just around the corner from us, yes. But the vast majority of the religious buildings that we go by are going to be in some way, shape, or form Christian. And so Paul and the people in Corinth were... <clears throat> Familiar with that. And, and just as is true for us, it is true for Paul, that temples tended to be large, magnificent structures out of deference to their deity. For instance, in, in the city of Rome, and of course Paul is writing to people who live in the city of Corinth, but in the city of Rome, there was a large temple to the gods Castor and Pollux. Castor and Pollux, the twins, or Gemini. Acts talks about Paul getting on a boat with the twins as their figurehead. Castor and Pollux. The raised part of the temple, you went up the steps to the raised part of the temple where the sacrifices were offered, it was 162 feet by 105 feet in dimension. Our multi-purpose building is 86 by 100. <clears throat> that wasn't the temple complex. That wasn't the courtyard. That wasn't anything. That was just when you went in to where we're going to go in and have the sacrifice part, when you go up on the platform part, it's 162 by 105. It took a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of labor and a lot of effort and a lot of materials to build a temple like that. We are familiar with large and ornate cathedrals. And it was the architect Christopher Wren who began building the great high, tall buildings that directed our attention upward to the heavens where the Lord was. Let's build a tall spire so we look up and we see not just a building, but we see the Lord. Now, you know, many of us, most of us are lifelong Baptists and we don't think about buildings that way. <clears throat> we talk about meeting in the auditorium, not the sanctuary. We don't think, and, and some of you remember you were involved in this. We were talking about building the multi-purpose building. We started out trying to build <clears throat> a, a completely different style of building that had an auditorium and 
There were plans that were drawn. And, and <coughs> excuse me, when we'd meet with some of the people who worked on those plans, they had a completely different viewpoint of how a church building should be. Very, for lack of a better word, churchy. Um, <clears throat> when I came here in 1984, folks, and this had been built as a Methodist church, every place that there's now an LED fixture, there was one single fixture hanging down that held a 100-watt bulb. And there was a large cylinder that was highly decorative that housed that bulb to make it look very reverential. When you turned on the lights, it was not very easy to see anything. And one of the first things that we did was put up some fluorescent lighting, brighten up the place. But the people that Paul was talking to had, they had a better understanding of the importance and the imagery and the symbolism of a temple. That it was a place built <clears throat> to convey reverence and honor and respect for that deity. You demonstrated your devotion by the, by the kind of building that you had built for, build for your deity. So Paul says, do you not really get this? You're the temple. You're the temple. Now, don't forget, folks. Not many wise men after the flesh. Not many noble men after the flesh. <clears throat> not many powerful men after the flesh. And yet they are the temple. They're the place where God dwells. <clears throat> So verse 16 and 7, verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Do you not realize that? Do you not grasp what that means? Now folks, even more than thinking about it culturally is thinking about this biblically. This has been God's agenda from the beginning. From the very beginning of the creation, it has been God's plan that he would live together with humanity. This is one of the reasons that Moses writes, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Because, folks, since Adam and Eve were created in the Garden of Eden, there's never been a time when God was not in some way in intimate relationship with humanity. First in the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> then in the tabernacle, and the law then is really the explanation of what kind of conduct men have to abide by to live in the presence of God. In other words, folks, the law is all about what kind of human conduct God can tolerate from us. And if there's one word to describe it, there's only one word. It's the word holy. God can live only with a holy people. And so when they habitually disobeyed, the actual presence of God departed, Ezekiel 10 and 11. 
And God is, just as they are alienated from him, he is alienated from them. And of course, he cares for them and he looks over them, but his presence does not return to the temple until his presence returns to earth in the person of Christ. Word was made flesh and dwelt. You know that means he, he put up his tent. The word became flesh and he put up his tent among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now since Pentecost, God's spirit has lived in us. We will talk about this in a few weeks, folks, in in a Sunday morning sermon. But the, the biblically, the absolute evidence, the only genuine evidence of a person being born again is that the Spirit of God lives in them. It isn't about any external, it isn't about their baptism, although water baptism is important, or observing the Lord's table, or identifying as a Christian. It is this, every believer has the Spirit of God. There's no such thing since the day of Pentecost of anybody being a believer who doesn't have the Spirit. And it doesn't matter if they're 5 years old or 50 years old or 150 years old. All believers have the Spirit or they're not believers. I mean, the Bible just could not be more clear about that. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living as God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Paul told the Ephesians, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. And Peter tells us that we are lively stones, living stones, built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, this is not just Paul going, look, let me give you an illustration, right? Just like there's all those temples in your city that house Roman deities. Well, that's just kind of like the way you are. No, it's not like that at all. It is that we are really the temple and God really lives inside of those of us that believe. And then, of course, folks, this will be our final state. Revelation 21, 2 and 3. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is our eternal condition. That in some way, we will live together eternally with God. He is since since he created us, prior to creating us, Christ was the son from the foundation of the world. God has desired to live with his people. And it just so happens that his people right now, since 
the, the ascension and Pentecost, His people are the church. So here are these people, and folks, we're getting ready. <clears throat> In a couple of weeks, we'll transition into the passage 5, 6, 7, and 8, 9, 10, and 11, where Paul just talks to them about problem after problem that they have and flaw after flaw in their thinking and in their conduct, but they are still the temple. They are still the temple. So let's go back to the text. Right? Why is God so terribly concerned about how we build the church if at the end of the day He is building the church because it is His church? And it's not just His in an ownership sense, it is His because it's where He lives. And because then the church belongs to Him, and because it is sacred to Him, it is deadly to hurt it. Verse 17. If any man, if anyone, and if I can, I just want to pause for a moment and talk to us about a translation, not dilemma, but a, but a note of translation, translation in our King James Bible. If you'll look at verse number 17, the word defile and the word destroy are the same Greek word. And in fact, in the Greek language, they are right next to each other. So that Paul wrote something like this, if any man... The temple of God destroys, destroy him, God shall. But it is the same word. And so I'm really not trying to be critical of our King James, but I, I think that it conveys to us two different ideas because we're reading two different words, but it's not two different words. It's one word. So you can you can put it however... So, which, I don't want to say whichever way makes more sense to you because we're not allowed to do the scripture, but you could read it like this. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God defile. Or you could read it like this. God's going to destroy anybody that destroys the temple because it's the same word used in the same way. Now here's where there is a little bit of a grammatical distinction, right? This is, this is the grammar, not the translation. If any man, if I'm just going to read it like this and, and put it into English for us. Verse 17, if any man at this moment is defiling or destroying the temple of God, present tense, right now this moment, if anybody is in the process of tearing God, down God's temple, and Paul doesn't tell them how they can do that, right? But we've, we've, we've got enough information to know that God has been pretty particular about how we should be building it. And that's, right, to put a fine point on it, not through worldly methodologies and wisdom. So if any man at this exact moment, right now in the present tense of his life, if his energies and labors are put to destroying, tearing down, God's temple, then at some point in time in the future, God will tear him down. God will destroy him. So the same word with two different 
perspectives of tense. One right this minute and one someday out there in the future. Which, you know, Paul's not trying to get into all this, but which may mean, folks, that somebody's going to be in the work of tearing down God's temple and it looks like they're being very successful at it. Because God doesn't use a present tense destruction. If you destroy it now, I'll destroy you now. Well, that, that, that would be easy to see. But if anyone is tearing it down now, at some point in time in the future, God is going to destroy it. And this is because it is his dwelling place. Verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. And again, you'll notice that in your King James Bible, the word temple there is supplied. The temple of God is holy, which ye are. We're supposed to be a holy people. And so obviously, sinfulness is destructive to the construction of the temple. So, again, what Paul doesn't do, and, and this is just my carnality, I wish Paul would have provided us a, a brief bullet point list of some of the things that we could do. But I think we can, as we read through the epistles, we can find plenty of ways that we can destroy, destroy the temple when we're in the process of destroying each other. And he has told us very plainly how to build properly. So this is still part, and, and it will actually, he'll just continue this on. We'll get to this eventually. But he will keep going with this idea of the divisiveness of the carnality of the Corinthians when it comes to the way they view the, the spiritual leaders that God has given them. He is still talking to them about how they should be building, how they should be thinking about what God is doing. It isn't a question, folks, of whether or not God uses people. It is never forgetting that it is God who is using them. And that's the perspective that Paul brings. Okay, I'm going to stop there tonight. We will come back to the chapter, Lord willing.